1: Hello from Buffalo, my name is Tony Guzman, sitting in for Peter Savota this episode. Thank you for listening to In Social Work. Although the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy has been repealed, the U.S. military has historically been both the source of, inspiration, and stress for gay, lesbian, and bisexual persons. The ironic notion that GOP service people have fought for the rights of others on behalf of the very country that has limited their own civil rights reflects their deep bond and commitment to service to our country. In this episode, our guests, Drs. Michael Peltz and David Albright, discuss their work reviewing the history and context of the U.S. military's treatment of gay, lesbian, and bisexual service members. Our guests also review the social work literature's content related to GLB service members and veterans over the past 20 plus years. Implications for social work education and practice as well as the need for additional scholarly work related to their unique needs are emphasized. David Albright, PhD, is the Hillcrest Foundation Endowed Chair in Mental Health and Associate Professor at the University of Alabama School of Social Work. He is a military veteran and his areas of scholarly interest and expertise include family caregiving, mental health, military and veterans, palliative and hospice care, and program evaluation. Michael Peltz, PhD, joined the University of Southern Mississippi School of Social Work as a visiting instructor in the fall of 2015 while completing the PhD program at the University of Missouri. His research interests include service provision with sexual and gender minorities, military members and veterans, older adults, minority stress theory and health disparities, intergroup contact theory, and culturally informed evidence-based practice. Doctors Peltz and Albright were interviewed in December 2015 by our own Dr. Lisa Butler, Associate Professor here at the UB School of Social Work.
2: Hi, my name is Lisa Butler, and I'm an Associate Professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Here with me today are Dr. Michael Peltz and Dr. David Albright. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. We are going to be discussing an article you both authored called Wounded Bonds, a Review of the Social Work Literature on Gay, Lesbian, and Bisexual Military Service Members and Veterans. And I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on the sort of factors that made you interested in this topic.
4: This is Michael, and I will start. So. I became interested in this topic during my MSW training several years ago. I did part of my clinical training at a VA hospital and some of the veterans there that identified as lesbian, gay or bisexual talked about their experiences in the military and their experiences as veterans and that piqued my interest. So I began to explore that and a few years later when I pursued my Ph.D. I had the opportunity to work with Dr Albright and his focus was on military issues and veterans issues so he was supportive of my interest in looking at issues related to this population and specifically military members and veterans that were LGBT. This is David.
3: I'm a military veteran and my family has a long history of uniformed service to our country. During my service as an infantryman and officer, one of my friends identified as gay. And I remember conversations with him about his perceptions of serving as a gay man. I was very fortunate that one of my doctoral students, now Dr. Peltz, expressed interest in the nexus of military and sexual orientation, which both served as a catalyst and aligned with my larger agenda in understanding the consequences and correlates of military service that include social determinants that influence the health and mental health of veterans.
2: Well, I'm wondering if you could speak to a question about why working with or work with military service members and veterans is important to social work specifically.
4: Go ahead, Michael. So I would say that every social worker or every social worker in the United States will work with military people who are military veterans or military members or their family members. So we know that the bulk of services are provided outside of the VA, so you do not have to work within the Veterans Health Administration to work with veterans. And we look at the no, when we look at the number of people who are currently serving or the number of people on reserve guard and the number of veterans, that equates to almost 25 million people before we look at their family members that are affiliated with the military through direct service or former service. So highly relevant to the field of social work. So this is David
3: and I I echo Michael on this. You have close to 25 million living veterans. and The majority of them are not using VA or DOD healthcare systems. If they're identifying as veterans and they're likely seeking care, in their communities from civilian providers. And research suggests that these providers, including social workers, uh, don't have the cultural competency to work with military-connected populations. This is important because social workers play a vital role in sustaining and supporting military members, veterans, and their families. For instance, social workers often take the lead in programming to prevent and respond to substance abuse, family maltreatment, and mental and behavioral health needs.
2: Yeah, I'm familiar with uh, also the fact that in working with veterans, in particular in the community, asking about prior service is really the great unasked question. People don't seem to realize that they really need to know that to understand the context in which they're seeing this person and what their presenting complaint might be about. So I'm very, very excited to hear you say that. So in your research in this particular paper, you looked at the historical context for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people in the military. So what sorts of things stood out when you looked at that?
4: This is Michael, and I would add that among those 25 million people that are serving or have served in the military, there are an estimated 1 million that identify as lesbian, gay, are bisexual so and it's difficult to measure those numbers accurately because most data sources do not collect information on sexual orientation, so those are estimates. but we learned in looking at the literature that gay, lesbian, and bisexual people have served in the military throughout history, most often in silence. One of the most well known figures, Steuben was is still quoted in the soldiers blue book today was a well-known historically documented gay man that helped to organize the colonial forces and was instrumental in the Revolutionary War so and if you open a current blue book you will see within the first couple of pages that he is quoted there and how gay lesbian and bisexual people have been allowed to serve in the military has changed over time sometimes the way they were treated were based on behaviors related to sexual activity. At other times, when there were need for forces, the, whether or not GLB people could serve was based on the need for the numbers of military members. And an interesting fact around Don't Ask, Don't Tell between 1993 and 2011, a lot of people did not realize, but almost 14,000 people were discharged during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And the cost. To enforce that policy was the government estimates five hundred and fifty six million dollars
2: Wow, and that was based on their orientation the discharge
4: that it was based strictly on sexual orientation so it was the policy don't ask don't tell was meant to be a compromise and actually served as a way to discharge people who identified as gay lesbian or bisexual so from 1993 to 2011 people could be discharged because of their sexual orientation.
2: And as I understand it, in many cases, these discharges were less than honorable. Is that correct?
4: That is correct. And there are efforts underway now to change those to honorable discharges.
3: I think one of the things that stood out to me that I didn't fully appreciate was the level of stigmatization that these men and women service members faced and endured, especially towards the end of World War II. And I wasn't aware of the importance of military service and the opportunities it often provided to gay men and lesbian women to to meet other gay men and lesbian women and learned that getting away from where they grew up and into different spaces with different people contributed to the gay rights movement of the 60s.
2: So I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about your thoughts about how the experiences are different for LGB veterans and military service members, what their experience was like while Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in place and what's happened since it's been repealed.
4: So this is Michael, and in looking at some of the literature, we found out that as many as 39% of people that served in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell were aware of an LGB person that was harassed because of their sexual orientation. So putting that into perspective, if somebody was LGB during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and they were overheard on a phone call with a partner or somebody of the same sex that disclosed their sexual orientation, they could be at risk of being discharged immediately. So always living in fear of their career and their military identity being stripped. So. And still, the military has taken great strides today to be inclusive of LGB people, but there are still laws, many laws outside of the military that are lacking and do not offer protections for LGB people. Only a handful of states, for example, offer protections related to housing and employment. So these are still factors that impact LGB people who are in the military and impact their family outside of the military. Mm -hmm. And when they become veterans. Correct.
2: So in your article, um, you looked at the social work literature related to LGB military members and veterans. So just generally, sort of what did you find? What was the upshot of it
4: all? This is Michael again, and we found, well, our motivation for looking for this is... We wanted to know where social work education or educators and practitioners would go to get information about military members and veterans and specifically about the subpopulation of LGB military members and veterans, particularly during a time when they were highly marginalized under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But so we looked at the top, based on the impact factor, the top 13 journals in social work and found very little. So there was very little information there. There was not an article that focused only on this population, and there were only eight articles that addressed this population in some manner. So identified many areas of many gaps in the literature.
3: Well, I was just going back to the question on experiences different for LGB veterans and military veterans. Um, and just to say LGB service members to Echo Michael likely have experienced discrimination on individual and institutional levels from early childhood, often experiencing rejection from family members, peers, and religious organizations. And then are often bullied, harassed, and victims of assault. These types of experiences, uh, the literature has tied to increased rates of psychological distress, things like depression and anxiety, substance abuse, and internalized heterosexualism. And so I think for several generations, LGB service personnel have faced workplace stigma, institutionalized heterosexual sexism, and sexual orientation-linked barriers to uh, vocational advancement.
2: Well, how do you think that's changed now that Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been repealed?
4: I will attempt to speak to that. This is Michael. I don't know, the data on that is not fully available yet, and I think that's an area that needs to be explored and researched. I will say that one of the important factors is policy that can have a strong impact on behavior and the military has taken a very strong strides to be inclusive and change policies of being inclusive of both military members and their families. So it will be interesting to explore that as data becomes available. I would just add
3: with the repeal of DADT. Like Michael said, there's still a lot of work to do both with laws and policies within our country, but also with the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I think there are opportunities to update articles within that that still put individuals who identify as non-heterosexual at potential risk.
2: So, there is one gender minority group that is still being discriminated against legally, which is transgender service members and veterans. Do you look at these experiences, and if so, what did you find?
3: Well, I'll start here. Transgender people are among some of the most socially stigmatized of sexual minorities facing discrimination in most aspects of their lives. Transgender people face discrimination in employment, housing, prison institutions, public settings, healthcare settings, et cetera, et cetera. And in addition to all sorts of discrimination, data findings suggest uh, disproportionate rates of violence towards transgendered people than the general population, with transgendered people of color actually experiencing the highest rates of violence. Transgendered people have a unique set of mental and physical health needs, yet these needs are not often met due to prejudices against transgender people within medical systems and dominant society. Healthcare for transgender population has historically and continues to be overlooked by governmental healthcare and academic
4: institutions. And this is Michael, and I would add to that to say that People who are working with military members and veterans, if they assume conforming gender roles, it's misleading because a large study done in 2014 found that almost one in three people that identify as transgender that were male at birth have military service. So if you are transgender and you are just transitioning from male to female, there is a one in three chance that you have served in the military at some point. So, I mean, this greatly, you can't separate the two or you're overlooking something if you do. So, in 6% of people who identify as female and are transitioning to male have military history. And research
3: shows that transgender veterans have many fears about obtaining services At the VA and coming out to their providers, literature shows that transgender veterans are not understood by healthcare providers, which creates barriers to healthcare. And yet, transgender veterans rely on these healthcare providers for gender dysphoria diagnosis, which is a gateway for cross-sex hormone treatment, sex reassignment surgeries, medical clearance when seeking gender-confirming surgical alterations. We have a lot of work to do in this area.
2: Well, so which leads to the what are the what's the Veterans Health Administration and the VA doing both for sexual and gender minority veterans these days?
4: So I will speak a bit to that, and I would add to what you were saying, David, that LGBT people often avoid care out of a fear of discrimination within from health care providers, which can contribute to increased health care needs, that sort of things. Which really
3: provides an opportunity, I think, for more training in respect to transgender patients, gender identity. For example, use of appropriate pronouns and chosen names and some of maybe the special needs for uh, confidentiality as well.
4: Right. And similar to LGB, just training around awareness of LGB patients and not projecting uh, personal values and beliefs in service and healthcare delivery.
2: Well, so what about the VA, what has the VA changed in what they're doing to try and help these populations?
4: So the VA are doing a few things. They have a directive on administering healthcare to transgender veterans. That directive calls for non-discrimination policies. It makes it very clear that services such as hormone treatment and other treatments related to transitioning are covered by the VA, but the VA does not, it also makes it very clear that the VA does not pay for sexual reassignment surgery or perform sexual reassignment surgery. Overall, the VA has created a national task force to look at service delivery with LGB and LGBT patients, and individual VAs also have work teams within their group just to look at serving this population.
3: So just to add on to that, the VHA created – the Office of Health Equity, which is committed to addressing special health needs of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender veterans and reducing health disparities for them and members of other vulnerable communities. Additionally, there's a VA Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and the mission there is to foster a diverse workplace, an inclusive work environment that ensures equal opportunity through policy development, workforce analysis, outreach, et cetera, I think, in terms of healthcare delivery, VHA is committed to a patient centered approach that focuses on the needs and values of the LGBT vets. In 2010, the VA issued a policy statement providing for patient visitation rights and supporting the needs of LGBT family members. Also in 2010, they issued the VHA directive, I think that Michael was referring to about the respectful delivery of health care to transgender and intersex individuals and actively provide training for healthcare care providers on services for sexual and gender minority veterans.
2: Are there any data yet on how well they're doing, how it's being perceived by these veterans and service members?
3: Well, there are some data that suggest that there is still a need for additional provider training with this particular population. And I think that the VA appears to be proactive in working to educate their providers and leaders of the hospitals around the country that are providing various services to sexual and gender minority veterans.
2: I'm interested in whether there's, and I don't know if there's any findings on this kind of thing yet, if at all, whether there might be some unintended consequences. I know that in research we've done in a focus group with female veterans, when we found and we're a little surprised to find that a number of them reported that at the VA, that while they appreciated the emphasis on military sexual trauma now, that there seemed to be an assumption that every female veteran was seeking services for MST, which wasn't the case. And so, which is absolutely unintended consequence of this emphasis. And so, it made me start to wonder about whether some of these other changes related to repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell might also have some unintended consequences. Have you heard of anything like that?
4: This is Michael. I know that that has been discussed in some of the conversations with the VA and other providers the some of the concerns about collecting data around sexual orientation is what you spoke to Dr. Butler if it appears in a file what will the consequences be for the patient at their sexual orientation shows up. So that's one of the debates that's taking place not just in the VA with other healthcare providers about we want this information, but what will be the consequences if it's placed in the file. And that's one of the areas where information is needed and speaks to the great need for additional training to provide service in a non-stigmatizing way.
2: David, do you have anything to add?
4: Well,
3: I think that a significant barrier to sexual and gender minority healthcare continues to be the lack of knowledge and training of providers on sexual and gender minority issues and how to provide culturally sensitive care. The lack of training can create confusion about how to treat sexual and gender minority people and potentially be the cause for mistreatment, which is something that you both are are suggesting, I think. Disparities persist both in the delivery of quality health care and in the health outcomes experienced by sexual and gender minority populations. And transgendered veterans face even greater difficulties in obtaining compassionate, evidence based, and patient centered care.
2: Well, I was going to ask you next about the implications of all this work you've been doing for social work education and training, and I'm, you've already said quite a bit. I'm wondering if you have any additional thoughts on that, because you know here at UB, we don't have a military social work program. We have a program to teach our students to work with veterans and military families, but nonetheless, clearly there's tremendous implications of what you've been describing for what we should be teaching and how we should be training. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit.
4: So in regards to, this is Michael, in regards to social work education and training, I just reiterate the likelihood that all social workers will work with veterans and military members either directly or indirectly by work with their families, whether they're working in child welfare, clinical focus, advocacy, policy, or medical social work, they will encounter military members and veterans. and. Those are that military identity and it's something that is very present for most people, even when they're no longer serving and influences the way that they see the world and influences their life. So I would emphasize that. And in regards to LGB veterans, I think in our education, we really need to emphasize how societal stigma impacts the individual and impacts their health, mental health, and also impact service delivery. So it's very important not to assume heterosexuality. And I think we must emphasize that in our training and our education and social work, not assume gender, and continue to explore ways that people cannot impose their personal values and be inclusive of military members and veterans and be inclusive of LGBT people, so we must continue to explore those in our education and training.
2: And practice, it sounds like, too. (laughs) That all sounds very relevant.
4: Yes, absolutely. David and I have talked about this at length. There are symbols that show up. For example, for an LGB person, a Christian symbol or a religious symbol that is uh, stigmatizing of and has negative views of people who are LGBT can lead a person in care delivery to not share information that may be important for their health care or mental health provider. So if you have those symbols in your environment, have something As simple as a rainbow flag or a LGB-friendly symbol that, that counters that, that may help to put a person at ease. And the same thing, if you have views on military or views on war that may be symbols for military members and veterans, have something to say that you're supportive of the veteran population and individuals, so things as simple as that, that we still have to work on.
3: Yeah, I I agree. I think there are many opportunities for social workers to create safe, affirming environments. How many social workers have LGBT magazines or newspapers available in waiting areas? How many provide unisex bathrooms? And, you know, if we're talking about focusing on patient-centered care, which is something quite important, most certainly for what we do as social workers, it's essential to have knowledge of the historical, social, and cultural aspects, including stigma and discrimination and development of LGBT movements. So we have a lot of opportunities as social workers to do more.
2: Yeah, and it sounds like one of the keys is to be very mindful about what you're doing and about the environment you're establishing. So given all that, I'm interested in what you're working on now, what you're studying now.
4: So I am, this is Michael, I'm very interested in exploring ways to improve culturally sensitive and competent and aware practice and methods that respect and counter ideologies and personal beliefs that are imposed on people that we serve. And I'm also interested in exploring ways that we can serve the growing population of older LGBT adults and LGBT veterans. That population is growing very quickly and their health needs can be different from the general population. So those are some of the things that I'm interested in.
3: Well, I have two projects right now, and another one that's unfolding. One, I'm the primary investigator for the South Alabama Veterans Need Assessment, and we're working to identify the unmet needs and perceived gaps and available services of veterans and their families located in southern Alabama, in which there are approximately 64,000 veterans. Uh, The state of Alabama is unique in that its density or proportion of veterans to total population is quite high at 10%, while the national average is closer to 1%. And so I have uh, been working on the needs assessment, and that will be ongoing over 2016. And the other big project is the Service Member to Civilian Summit And this is an NIH-funded summit, and we were able to host this at the University of Alabama last year, and we are hosting it this coming year in Birmingham. What it is is it's a collaborative research summit that honors our nation's service members from all branches of the military and it addresses current and emerging needs of service members transitioning to civilian life, encompassing civilian employers, community-based organizations, family and children, and higher education. This is a national summit, but it certainly lends itself to increasing awareness, building relationships, and doing a lot of good for military-connected populations within the state of Alabama and the Southeast. Research-wise, I'm interested in family caregivers who identify as veterans. We have a really large cohort of men and women from the Vietnam-era cohort through Gulf War I that are taking on additional family caregiving roles that were largely not being acted, if you will, by our World War Two and Korean veterans, and so I am working in that space as well.
2: That's really interesting, and it, it sort of raises the – issue that I'm sure you both have given a lot of thought to, that there are such different requirements potentially by era, but also for gay, lesbian, bisexual service members, also by sort of era related to the degree of discrimination or stigmatization at that time. Those would all sort of intersect in fascinating ways in terms of what veterans need to be helped with now. You know, I've wondered about veterans who once Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, who had gone through their entire careers closeted and, you know, how they feel about the fact that that has changed. I mean, it's a real, I would think that would be sort of a challenge, like, hey, I did it that way the whole time, now can I actually come out or do I still need to be closeted since my entire career was predicated on being closeted. But anyway, so I guess the larger issue is just really there's these real era differences for all veterans, but I think they have particular implications for gay, lesbian, bisexual veterans where these eras were associated with different levels of stigmatization. Does that make sense?
4: That makes good sense. and When you were talking about that, it reminded me of the, the different things such as don't ask, don't tell. And I had the opportunity to interview a veteran that served in the 1950s so during the McCarthy era and he was very fortunate and he personalizing that a little bit he specifically talked about he never had sex with another man or never disclosed that he had sex with another man so he was one of the few people during that era that were able to leave the military with an honorable discharge which did not happen often then so yes very important to consider
2: Well, in closing, are there any last things that you would like our audience to know about or to think about with respect to this population and these issues?
3: Well, this is David. I think the changing social climate has presented a case for an increase in sexual and gender research, resulting in bringing to the forefront the issue of inequality for sexual and gender minorities in most aspects of their lives, including employment, housing, Healthcare and some of the other areas that we have been discussing. And my hope going forward is that the discipline of social work and social workers work, <laughs> express interest <laughs> in this space, in this nexus of sexual orientation, gender identity, and military service.
2: Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much. For- for participating in this podcast with us, very important research. Thank you so much, gentlemen.
4: Thank, Thank you, sure. Dr. Butler, for this opportunity.
1: You've been listening to Doctors Michael Peltz and David Albright discuss gay, lesbian, and bisexual military service members and veterans on in social work.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on the ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.